Snap Studios. Welcome to Snap Judgment. Today, we're going to devote the entire episode to a single story. Our storyteller is Liz Heaton. And before we get started, I want to let you know that this story, this American story, references an incident of mass gun violence. Liz is going to tell us about a traumatic thing that happened one night to her, to her boyfriend John, and hundreds of others. And know while this story does contain trauma, this is not just a story of trauma. It's also a story of love, of community, of caring, and of hope. Snap Judgment. I can honestly tell you that my family never asked me about it. They never bring it up. John, who, who, you know, we were there together, he'd talk about it anytime I need to, but he doesn't feel the need to talk about it the way I do. It is cathartic for me. The more I talk about it, the more I am able to keep hold of it and keep control of how I do and how I feel about it, and I will never pretend it didn't happen. I will never not talk about it. I hadn't done any serial dating in quite a few years. I think I had become mildly cynical. And my mom said, I'm going to put you back on the dating app if you don't go back on yourself because you're a lot funnier when you're dating. And then John Monroe came into my world. John and I met on, on a dating site back in Ontario, Canada. We just went for coffee at this place on the river in Peterborough because the premise was... If we find each other hideous, it won't be as awkward to get out of. I remember seeing him coming towards me because he was waiting down by the water and I was waiting up on the porch and I thought, oh my God, he was quite lovely. We bonded over country music. We bonded over hockey because that's the Canadian thing to do. And we had both been married, so we didn't feel like we had to hold anything back. There was a really good kiss and after the kiss he said, so I guess you don't find me hideous. (laughs) About four weeks into our relationship, I got home from work one afternoon and John called and said, hey, I've got a question for you. How do you feel about going to Vegas? And he told me about this Route 91 Harvest Festival that was going on, the Country Music Festival in Las Vegas. And I said, hell yes, I'm in. And that was it. I'd never been that excited about anything before, and I just had a feeling that it was going to be um, a monumental trip for us in one way or another. My sister Kim was very important to me. When I was packing for Vegas, I said I was going to buy a new purse, and she said, oh, absolutely not. Come here and look and see what I have, and we looked through hers, and Kim just said, you know, take this one. It would be perfect, but don't lose it. John and I get to Vegas. We get the car service over to the Bellagio. It was just overwhelming because even though I'd been to Vegas, I certainly hadn't stayed at the Bellagio. We had this phenomenal room overlooking the fountains. We'd gamble. He won. I did not. 
<laughs> I just broke even ish. We'd leave the festival, go wander the strip, and then we'd go back. All I heard was the country music. I mean, everybody was having a great time. Everybody's in shorts and cowboy boots. 20,000 plus people all celebrating a love of country music, celebrating beautiful weather, a beautiful venue, drunk on fun, drunk on love, and drunk on the fact that we were just very much alive. That was Friday and Saturday. And then Sunday, we wanted to see Jason Aldean, who was one of the final artists of the night. We finally got to the festival and it was really quite crowded. People are stepping in front of you and you couldn't necessarily see. So we thought that night, since we got there late, stay a little bit further back. We were taking selfies and laughing a lot. I'm kind of hugging him from behind, but I'm holding the beers and he's taking the picture. And in the back, you can see Mandalay Bay. And in that moment, I just said to him, oh my God, I am in love with you. <laughs> and he just stopped and looked at me and he said, and I am in love with you too. It felt so freeing because I had wanted to say it for days, probably a couple of weeks. He had the biggest smile on his face and we kissed and we started to laugh again. It was just as though I had just hit the jackpot, like ding, 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 ding. And then everything changed. John had just gone to use the porta potty, and I went kind of with him so that we didn't lose sight of each other. The next thing I thought was, that's really weird that they're having fireworks right in the middle of a Jason Aldean song. And the next thing I remember was John hitting my hands both really hard to knock the drinks out of them and grabbing my wrist and starting to run. I still thought the noise that I could hear was fireworks, but then that was kind of drowned out by the screaming and everybody was running and it was like a stampede. And then I realized what was happening. We were being shot at. It was 10 o'clock at night when the shooting started. John thought there's got to be more than one shooter and they're all going to be waiting for people to exit. He ran the opposite direction, dragging me. I couldn't tell you if it was 20 steps or 50 steps. We came upon this wire fence. It was a security fence, so it was about 10 feet high. It had some kind of thick, thick plastic over it. I was trying to climb and I couldn't fit my toe into the holes of the fence. As soon as you tried to put your foot in, it just slipped back down again. I thought, I don't know how I'm gonna get over this with my boots on. It just looked impossible because the whole point of the fence was to keep people in and that hit me. We're not supposed to be able to get over this. I was swearing and crying. Everything that I've survived and everything that I've been through and this is the way I'm going to die. And suddenly I feel myself being catapulted over this fence. Somehow John, he just put his hands on my butt and then hurled me over. I ripped my side open pretty badly on the fence and I landed on the other side. 
I started screaming for John because I couldn't see him anymore, but I could still hear bullets. And uh, I was too scared to run without him. I didn't want to go without him. He landed beside me, and I just remember thinking the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life was his face right then. He grabbed me, and we just started running. I mean, I had no clue where we were or where we were going. We just kept running. I really remember the pounding of the feet. There were thousands of people running, and the ground was actually shaking, and you didn't know where that gunfire was coming from. I remember two people falling that were just to the left of me. Didn't seem as though they tripped. We were holding our hands around our head a lot of the time because the shots were still coming and it still sounded like they were ripping right past our heads. And it just kept going. It sounded like it was getting louder. There was an underground parking where a whole bunch of people had gone into and that's where we were going to go. And as we started to run into that, everybody started screaming and running back out. We thought, oh my God, there's a shooter in there too. There was this woman running towards us, which meant she was running toward the shots. I grabbed her in a bear hug and I said, you can't go back, you can't go back, you can't go back in there. And she was screaming, I've lost my people, I've lost my people, I can't find them anywhere. John took her phone and started looking through the most recent calls and and miraculously actually got a hold of somebody. So he told them where we were and they came and got her. I couldn't tell you where we ended up. I remember people in the street flagging cars down and so many sirens, ambulance and police. I'm thinking about my sister and for some reason I just started saying, please take me home to see Kim. I gotta tell her I love her. I kept screaming Kim, Kim's name, Kim, Kim, you gotta get me back to my sister. And John promised to take me home to my sister and to my mom. And it was after that, with adrenaline and everything else, I collapsed. This guy came up from the other side of me and just grabbed my arm, and he said, we're all helping each other. And he picked me up, and then we just kept running. I was bleeding from my side pretty heavily, enough that it was a little worrisome. I didn't know if I'd been shot. I realized then that I'd lost Kim's purse with all of my information in it. I started to hyperventilate a little bit. I'm laying there and John's frantically worried because my breathing's getting out of control. Things are starting to look blurry. I'm kind of feeling fuzzy, but this couple came along and they were a paramedic and a police officer and they were together off duty from somewhere on the East Coast. And the police officer said to me, what's your name, what's your name? And I wasn't answering, and I wasn't paying attention to what he was saying. There were thousands of screaming people running by. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, John said, her name is Kim. And everything stopped for a second. I looked at him, I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? No, it's not. My name is Liz. I'm here in Vegas. We're getting shot at. I'm lying here on the ground. I can't even breathe. I don't even know where I am exactly. Holy cow, dude. We've had some crazy sex the last four days. And you just called me Kim. And I, you had to laugh. The laughing allowed me to start to breathe. And all of a sudden, I could talk. 
I could speak clearly. It brought me back to earth. It brought me back to reality. Just to be able to laugh in that exact moment, even though that laugh was only a second long, snapped me back. The police officer said, she's got her lungs back. But John had this look of horror on his face. I mean, he was mortified. And he's like, Liz, Liz, oh my God. I know your name is Liz. I'm sorry, it's just that all I've heard is Kim. You've screamed Kim so many times in the last 10 minutes. We finally, after three hours, made it back to the Bellagio. And when we got to the front doors, there were SWAT officers there, and it was like a ghost town. And John just kind of got this big Goliath kind of voice on, and he said, she's hurt, we've been running for hours. We're going to our room you have to let us in. And they said, okay, you can go in, but you can't leave again. And he looked at this guy and said, where the fuck do you think we're going to go? We couldn't get through on the phone lines to anybody, so we put the TV on. The count was two dead and so many injured. And then it went up to 21 dead. Every time it went up, I just started to cry harder and harder. It ultimately went to 58. We took a picture of ourselves in our hotel room. We posted on Facebook and said, we're alive. We lay down and John just thought maybe shutting the TV off would help. But as soon as we did that, the phone started ringing off the hook. So Kim, she was the first person to call. To actually hear her voice, it's hard to explain if you truly believe that you're about to die because I as we were running I was just thinking what if I never speak to my sister again one of the first things I said to her was that I lost your purse (laughs) for some reason I felt the need to tell her that I'd lost it and I was sorry she was you know laughing and crying at the same time and then she just said this doesn't make any sense And I said, no, it really doesn't. Two weeks after we got back from Vegas, I got a call, and it was an FBI agent from Las Vegas. And he had found my sister's purse. Inside of that purse was my ID, some money, and some lipstick, and a winning chit from the Bellagio. The FBI agent took it upon himself to get in the car, go down to the Bellagio, cash that winning chit in, and put the money in my purse, and then FedEx my purse back to me with everything that was in it when I lost it that night. My sister was thrilled to get her purse back, but she had actually told me when I did get it back that I could keep it because it probably had some pretty significant meaning. But it was almost a reminder I didn't want. I decided that it meant more to actually give it back to her. And when John got there, my sister just embraced him. And um, just said thank you about 10 times. But then my whole family kind of went through a lineup. He had to go through like a receiving line. They were incredibly grateful to have us there.
tremendous thank you to Liz Heaton, whose family was able to extend their gratitude to the special man in her life who is still in her life. Gun violence is the leading cause, the leading cause of premature death in the United States. Now, the original score for this story is by Dirk Schwarzhoff. Additional production support from Joey Fishergrand and Zara Norbash. Special thanks to Neil Ketcher and to Jessica Lawrence. The story is produced by Dave Nadelberg, creator of the global stage show and podcast Mortified, now celebrating its 20th anniversary. It can be found at GetMortified.com. Now, if you know that stories are everything, but you keep running out of stories, here's a tip. Make sure you're up on your story game, the Snap Judgment Podcast. Be the coolest person you know. Available at your fingertips wherever you get your podcast. And this, this here is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could try to bargain the next door neighbor kids down on a box of Girl Style cookies. And when they refuse, you might even demand to speak to a manager. And you would still, even then, not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is PRX. <laughs> <laughs>